This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Many top flight lawyers abandoned Donald Trump during his divisive presidency, but he still has two in his corner as he faces his biggest criminal legal threats yet. Mark Mukasey and Alan Futterfass are representing Trump in two separate investigations in New York, which could lead to a historic prosecution of the former president. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Greg Farrell. Trump has struggled to attract big-name lawyers and firms in his latest court battles, and at times he ended up with lawyers who were not experts in the area they were litigating. Is a similar thing happening with the New York investigations? So far, no. And that's one of the main points of the story, and I try to do this in a not-too-disparaging way. But unlike some of the stop-the-stealing lawyers from November who were holding press conferences and talking about Venezuelan dictators and secret plots involving you know, everything but extraterrestrials, these guys who are handling the New York case right now are serious lawyers who are good at what they do. Now, as you mentioned, the former president does have a tendency to like cycle through lawyers and get a new one if he doesn't like, you know, the way things are going. But I think he also recognizes that, you know, it's one thing to have a series of lawyers like in November who held a lot of press conferences and tried to sow a lot of doubt in the public, but really didn't have any good skills when it came to filing things in court, or at least they couldn't present a presentable case, to a criminal case in New York State where I think Trump knows he needs good lawyers to hold this off and to slow down and hopefully derail any investigation into his business practices. Let's start with the Vance investigation. Tell us about how he's beefed up his staff and and what you know about it so far. Well, fortunately, because of Trump's contesting turning over the uh, eight years of tax records while he was in office, there's a lot of back and forth between Cy Vance's office and the president's lawyer's the whole appeals process. So we do know that Vance's office is very interested in paperwork, not just the tax filings, you know, where Trump personally and Trump organization had to state to the government what they earned, et cetera, and valuations on various properties, but also related paperwork. This grew out of the campaign finance violation that Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to, where Cohen paid hundred. $30,000 out of his own pocket and hush money to keep uh, an adult film actress from talking about an alleged affair with Trump. And Cohen pleaded guilty to that, and Trump was not charged with it. However, it came out during that prosecution, which was at the federal level, that the Trump organization basically paid Cohen back by a series of payments like that detailed or described as retainer, monthly retainer for law services, when in fact it was a campaign contribution. So that runs afoul of New York books and records laws, which indicate, which basically hold that companies in the state of New York cannot, you know, file or have fraudulent books and records that are wrong with the purpose of covering up wrongful activity. So it's one thing just to have a mistake in your books if you're a local jewelry shop or a nail salon. But if you're basically distorting the books and records of your company, out of a conscious attempt to hide something that's illi- some form of illicit activity, then that's a that breaks New York State law. So I think that's primarily what Vance's office is looking into, because there are many uh, examples in media, in various newspapers, and Bloomberg have reported on, you know, a discrepancy in valuation, uh, where a Trump property is valued at, you know, a very 
high, you know, arguably inflated value in order to secure a bigger line of credit from a bank. Uh, but come tax time, it's valued at a lowball value in order to reduce the tax on it. Now, the defense, and the lawyers did not describe to me, nor would they, like what their plan is. They wouldn't show any cards. But, you know, people who've been down this road before, other lawyers, explained to me that most likely there are, there are several ways to defend, presuming there is a, a charge at some point about the company mismarking or you know, trying to minimize its taxes but maximizing its bank's loans. Uh, there could be an argument that this is the world of Manhattan real estate. You know, the 10 or 15 top players in Manhattan real estate, this is kind of par for the course. Yes, it's a 55-mile-per-hour speed zone, but everybody drives 65 or 70. So that, I'm not sure that will hold up necessarily, but it's a legitimate argument that, you know, this is the way business is in Manhattan for everybody, and it's actually unfair to expect one of the top dozen players to, you know, adhere more closely, you know, and get away from the sort of self-promotion that's, you know, part and parcel of the real estate game in New York. And also tell me how Vance has beefed up the people working on it. So Vance most significantly has brought in a senior lawyer from the law firm of Paul Weiss, the guy from Mark Pomerantz, who not only has spent the past 25 years or so in the private sector, and uh, working for corporate clients, but prior to that was head of, uh, I think, criminal section at the Southern District of New York, the U.S. Attorney's Office. So he was a former federal prosecutor who did handle mob cases, uh, other serious crime cases. I mean, he's very sophisticated in terms of financial fraud. He's been advising Vance, I think, on and off for several years, but it was made formal and official more than a month ago when he came on as like a temporary either assistant or deputy chief you know, district attorney. What we don't know, the big news last week is that Cy Vance has uh, decided or announced he's not going to run for re-election. That means Vance will no longer be DA at the end of this calendar year, whereas any prosecution, uh, you know, the size and scope and seriousness of going after the former president of the United States is certainly going to take a long time to unfold. So to some extent, bringing in a top person like Mark, Mark Pomerantz, who must have known and must have been advised by Vance, I'm assuming, before he accepted this, that... Vance would probably go, and he would need to stay there for the course of the year to see this thing through. And this is a speculation on my part. We don't know this, but it makes sense that this would be a way to uh, guarantee some continuity in terms of the management of the case going forward. So let's talk a little bit about these two lawyers. Tell us about Mark Mukasey. So Mark Mukasey, he has a famous last name. His father was, back in the 1980s, a senior, senior prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District under the U.S. Attorney Rudolph Giuliani. So Michael Mukasey and Rudolph Giuliani are very close going way back. Uh, in the late 80s, Michael Mukasey became a federal judge. And um, in the 1990s, when Rudy was elected mayor, he asked Michael Mukasey to swear him in, not only in his first uh, oath of office as New York City mayor, but also uh, after he was reelected. So there's a close family relationship between the Giulianis and the Mukaseys. Mark Mukasey, uh, I think, you know, considered Rudy to be a mentor figure, and followed his, his father's career path and Rudy's uh, by becoming a you know a prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, and after almost ten years, went to the private sector and went to Rudy Giuliani's firm, which was then Bracewell Giuliani. He, my, Mark McCasey and his father were supporters of Rudy when he had his brief run for president in 2008, and again when Rudy switched firms a few years later, I think in 2016 to go to Greenberg Trowrig, uh, Mark McCasey followed him. 
Now, I had the perception, I think a lot of people do, did that through this point, Mark Lucchese was basically benefiting from Rudy's connections and getting a lot of business handed to him uh, from Rudy. But it's clear, especially during the, the latter years, that Lucchese had basically established his own credibility as a white-collar criminal defense lawyer. So that when Rudy did leave Greenberg Prowrig, the firm was not happy with Rudy being such a, a big vocal proponent of President Trump. Rudy left in early 2019 to basically work full-time for Trump on a personal capacity. Mark Mukasey decided to go his own way and set up his own boutique, trial boutique. He's a very good trial lawyer. He's good on his feet. He's won a number of cases, and he can stand on his own. And I think it's clear that it's not so much that there's a break with Rudy as much as he's gone his own path and sort of left the Rudy era behind. And he did give us a quote for the story in terms of without saying anything directly disparaging about Rudy. I think he was clear that he had nothing to do with some of the soft-to-steel efforts that Rudy and other lawyers were engaging in back in November. I think he views himself and his track record shows he's, he's a highly competent, accomplished defense lawyer. White-collar crime cases and, and actually most famously in the past two years, uh, Navy SEAL Eddie Gallagher, who had been accused of murder, were gunning down a 17-year-old prisoner who was part of ISIS, but he was captive and, and unarmed and just, you know, was accused of murder. Um, Lucchese won an acquittal for him in a Navy court. And then um, the president, you know, uh, basically championed his cause. And the one charge that Gallagher was convicted on, which was posing with the corpse of this kid, which is against Navy regulations, a minor infraction compared to the murder charge, the president issued, you know, uh, an order of clemency so that Eddie Gallagher didn't have to do any time in jail for or suffer from it at all, and is still a Navy SEAL. So Mark Mukasey gained some national notoriety. That was a big case, particularly in right-wing circles and on Fox News. So he developed a national profile through that. The quote is about Giuliani. Mukasey said, he went his way and I went mine. I did not and would not ever get involved in election-related cases. Are a lot of his clients conservatives? He's clear in saying that he represents you know, a wide variety of people on the Democratic side as well as on the uh, Republican side that it actually doesn't matter to him what their politics are. But, you know, as with the, the Eddie Gallagher case, and he's done some work for Trump in the past and just his ties to Rudy, uh, at a certain point in time in 2017, Mark Mukasey was considered a, a possible contender for the job of U.S. attorney in the Southern District. I don't know why. I presume it's because Rudy had the ear of Donald Trump, the incoming president back then, and might have been promoting him because Rudy and, and the Mukasey's go way back. If you didn't know much about Mukasey, you'd assume he was on the right side of the spectrum. You know, he did consult and give some advice to Roger Ailes when Ailes was going through some trouble at Fox News because of allegations of sexual harassment in the workplace. So there's enough ties, on, visible ties, on the right side of the conservative side that certainly compared to Budapest, the other lawyer, that there's a perception, even if it's not accurate, that Mukasey, especially given his father and Rudy's ties and history, is on the Republican side of the ledger. So now tell us about Foodafast. Alan Foodafast belongs to that category of very good, competent New York lawyers who are not bold-faced names. They're not stars. They're not well-known. As you know from your experience, you know, there are a lot of good lawyers, but there's so many good lawyers in Manhattan that unless you handle like a big case, you aren't necessarily going to become a bold-faced name. And a number of people I spoke to basically consider Foodafast to be a very good lawyer. The thing is, characteristically, he's very different, and this actually could be a benefit to them as a pair. Foodafast is not a shoot-from-the-hip swagger. Mark McKenzie has some swagger. He's not afraid to 
go on TV after a verdict or even before, make some statements about a case. And uh, I wouldn't say shoot first and ask questions later, but, you know, you can make a quick judgment and make a bold statement. Kudafas is not that kind of guy. He's actually somewhat uncharacteristically very careful. He prepares and plans carefully and meticulously. And that's not always a trait you see in defense lawyers. Sometimes a really good defense lawyer is just someone who, who can draw quickly and you know, get out in front of a news cycle, as opposed to someone who's like enmeshed and entrenched in, in the minutiae and in the, in the legal particulars of a case. I mentioned one example of what Budapest had done for Trump before, a couple of years ago, during the now famous meeting that was revealed in 2017 between Donald Trump Jr. and a Russian lawyer who was, you know, supposedly peddling dirt on Hillary Clinton during the campaign of 2016. When this bombshell story came out, it seemed to confirm what Trump's critics had been saying, that there was clearly, you know, some ties between, you know, the Russian government and the Trump campaign in an effort to uh, hurt Hillary Clinton and help Trump's candidacy. And um, there was a lot of, at that time, and you know, Trump's style is very much to have his lawyers go out on TV and bash the, you know, Democrats on the Mueller or the Democrats in the judiciary, or the Democrats wherever they are, including inside Vance's office. Budafat was not of that opinion. He made a judgment that he didn't think any laws were broken and that to just let this investigation proceed would probably not turn up anything criminal. And it turned out he was right that, you know, the Mueller report, this 400-plus pages, covered a wide range of activities and pretty much everything that was happened in the 2016 campaign, including that meeting, but was not able to build any kind of case uh, against Trump Jr. for taking that meeting. And he's considered, I mean, he's made donations to Democrats? Yeah, so this is interesting for a client like Donald Trump who seems to pay attention to who's on the Democratic side and who's on the Republican side. It's clear that Budapest has given money in the past to Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and closer to home, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand. But clearly, you know, I think Budapest uh, has won the loyalty of Trump and his family for the work he's done, you know, over the past few years not just on Donald Trump Jr., but also on the wind-down of the Trump Foundation charity, which has been a target of the New York Attorney General's office. People will usually hire defense lawyers from one firm to defend them. But here you have lawyers from two different law firms. Isn't that unusual? It would be if they were both at big law firms. They both run their own small boutiques where the principal is involved in pretty much everything. So to some extent, it makes sense. A, not every big law firm wants to take on a controversial client like Donald Trump for reputational reasons and otherwise, you know, maybe concerned about being paid. Trump has a reputation, even if it's not true, there's a reputation that he can be a tough guy to weed, you know, when it comes time to, to getting paid. That's reputation. That doesn't mean it's true, but it's sort of, unfortunately, it's a, a reputation that, that he has. So to this extent, a couple of guys who don't have to fear what their other clients think both believe strongly, including the Democrat, you know, or at least someone who seems to be leaning on the Democratic side, Alan Fudafat, believes that everyone deserves a, a defense. I think in some ways it makes sense. And even though these guys never worked together before until they came together over this case and over the Trump Foundation case, it does seem to make a lot of sense. And I think temperamentally it well, there's a bit of a, I wouldn't say good cop, bad cop, but this sort of like, you know, you've got, you know, Alan Fudafat, who's very focused and preparation got Mark Lucchese. He's got a great track record in recent years of winning cases in court, and he's a great courtroom performer. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. He's good at trial. He likes being in trial. That's why he gave up the, the trappings of a big white-collar law firm a group of trial to go his own way, is that he just likes to get in there and fight in court. 
The job of criminal defense attorneys when there's an investigation is to try to make sure your client doesn't get indicted. What do they do now that they're at this point? The biggest effort ended a few weeks ago when the Supreme Court refused to uh, to hear another appeal over whether or not the eight years of tax returns could be turned over. That they, the year and a half spent haggling over that and fighting it succeeded in pushing the tax you know returns issue out of Trump's presidency, and now he's a private citizen again. So to some extent, even though they lost that case, uh, it was a at least a, not a complete loss. They were able to stall the tax returns being turned over until Trump was no longer president. But now that it's there, that now it's a much smaller thing. They'd have to, if there are charges, and we're not sure there will be, you know, just fight on the legitimacy of the charges and try to prevent, prevent anything from actually ended up you know, going to trial. Because a jury trial in the island of Manhattan, which is a very high percentage of Democratic voters, uh, is not likely to be a friendly place for Trump. Thanks, Greg. That's Bloomberg News legal reporter Greg Farrell. The Supreme Court will be busy with environmental issues next month, with arguments scheduled in closely watched cases involving chemical contamination, renewable fuels, and a natural gas pipeline. All three cases will be heard the last week of the month. Joining me is senior legal reporter for Bloomberg Law, Ellen Gilmer. Is this a blockbuster term for environmental law? I wouldn't call it a blockbuster term. We're not quite there yet because the legal questions that the Supreme Court is dealing with in these cases, they're just not those big sweeping environmental law questions. But it is a big term for environmental law, mostly just with the volume of cases. So these might not be the major questions, but there's just so many of them. And they scheduled them all for one week. Do you think there is a reason behind that? I mean, I think it's just to make environmental law reporters' lives difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know. They were just feeling like that would be a good week for a lot of environmental issues. They are, like you said, back to back to back, um, uh, Monday through Wednesday. And no, I don't. I don't really know why they did it that way. But so they'll they'll kick off the week with a case called Guam versus United States. It has to do with this big contamination at a landfill site in Guam and how the federal Superfund law uh, is interpreted. Basically, whether Guam or the federal government should have to pay a 160 million dollar bill to clean up this site, um, which is contaminated and used to be owned by the U.S. Navy. A year ago, the court resolved another Superfund case. Does that tell us anything about this case, or is it different issues? It's different issues, and there's no real read-through in terms of precedent from the case, uh, the Superfund case the Supreme Court heard last term. It is interesting, though, just that the justices decided to to do another one, because Historically, the justices haven't been uh, really eager to take a lot of Superfund cases. So a lot of environmental law scholars and practitioners were kind of surprised to see them, you know, kind of biting off another big Superfund question this term. Um, But it just has to do with this uh, persistent legal issue that's kind of been bouncing around in appellate courts for a few years. Um, The question is basically, if there's an old, uh, in the Guam case, there's this old Clean Water Act settlement. And the question is whether that settlement that happened um, in separate proceedings affecting this contaminated site, whether that settlement triggered a statute of limitations under the Superfund law. And if it did, how that affects uh, when Guam went to court to try to recover this money. Um, So it's this big 
question of timing and statutory interpretation. Can you describe what the Superfund is for those of us who are not so uh, well-versed in the subject? Yeah, absolutely. So the Superfund law uh, is the federal statute that governs how the most contaminated sites in the country are cleaned up. So it kind of sets out, you know, how do we figure out who all of the responsible or potentially responsible parties are for this big, you know, legacy contaminated site? And then how do we divvy up who's responsible for how much of the cleanup? Um, So it's really a a foundational environmental statute, one that, that deals with cleaning up all this legacy pollution. So one might ask, well, if the point of the Superfund is to clean these sites, then why is there a fight over whether or not to clean the site? Well, the fight is over who has to pay to clean up the site. So uh, so that's really what, what most Superfund litigation is about, is who has to pay and, and how much, uh, who has to pay what share. So here we've got this $160 million cleanup bill, and it's all about this site that the U.S. Navy used to own. So the, the issue is, is this the federal government's bill? Is it their responsibility or is it Guam's responsibility? And affecting that that kind of disagreement is whether this old Clean Water Act settlement kind of affects which party can go to court over it. Then there's also Cali Frontier Cheyenne Refining versus Renewable Fuels Association. What is that about? It sounds a little technical, but... It does sound a little technical. Isn't that par for the course for these environmental cases? It is. Um, They are so wonky. So this is a case that pits oil refineries against the ethanol industry. So those are who those two parties are. You've got Holly Frontier, operates an oil refinery, Renewable Fuels Association, you know, advocates for ethanol interests. So the question here is all about the federal renewable fuel standard, which are these federal requirements for oil refineries to blend biofuels, ethanol and other stuff, into their products. The EPA, under the renewable fuel standard, can grant waivers to small refineries, basically just give them a break on these requirements sometimes. And the question is, when can they grant those waivers? How often? Um, What are the eligibility requirements? So that's the issue for the Supreme Court. Basically, an appeals court said EPA had overstepped in granting some of these waivers. And the industry, the oil industry says, oh, this ruling gets it all wrong. Supreme Court, you need to take a look at this. The Supreme Court is taking a look at it. And in the meantime, EPA under the Biden administration has come around and said it actually supports what the appeals court said, that it has this kind of more limited authority to grant these waivers. Does it seem like a change in position on cases from the Trump administration to the Biden administration is going to happen frequently with environmental cases? Because the Biden administration's position on the environment seems to be, you know, almost not quite, but almost diametrically opposite to the Trump administration's. I think, yes, that's a broad trend. We'll see switching sides. I do think in some of these Supreme Court cases, um, they're getting at really technical legal questions that aren't quite so partisan or ideologically charged. So so here we did see a shift and we have seen a shift in some other cases, but, you know, like in the Guam case that we've talked about and in uh, other cases, the Biden administration has maintained the position uh, that the Trump administration had held. Then you have the case of the Penn East pipeline. Tell us about that. 
Yes. So this is an interesting one. Um, it's another pipeline case, um, which we were talking about with the Superfund. The Supreme Court took a Superfund case last term, and it took another one this term. Same thing with pipelines. Last time, the Supreme Court heard a case about the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. This case, it's hearing uh, Penn East Pipeline versus New Jersey. And the issue here is is kind of a fresh issue for the court. It has to do with property rights. Um, when a big natural gas pipeline gets approved by federal regulators, it gets to use the federal power of eminent domain to take land uh, along its route to build its project. Um, so Penn East uses, went out to use the power of eminent domain after it got its federal permit and started taking land along its route so it could build its project, um, which is a pipeline between Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And New Jersey said, wait, you don't have the power to do this for state lands. There are state-owned lands along the Penn East Pipeline's route. And so Penn East was trying to use eminent domain against these state-owned lands. New Jersey said, we have sovereign immunity. You can't use, bring a condemnation action against the state. And an appeals court agreed with New Jersey. So Penny said this would just flip on its head the way that we've been doing pipelines for all this time. Uh, Supreme Court, you have to get involved. <laughs> the Supreme Court agreed to take a look at it. Um, and, and so we've got that case uh, coming up in April. Um, this is another one. Uh, or this is one where, where the position has stayed the same across administrations. So the Trump administration supported Penny's legal position. The Biden administration just recently filed a brief that, that just echoes those arguments. So now um, let's talk about some of the cases that have already been argued just to get a, a look at the whole term. So there was a, mm-hmm. there was the water wars. I call it the water wars case between Florida and Georgia. Yeah, I call them the water wars cases, too. There's, <laughs> there, there were two, um, Florida and Georgia. There was another one earlier in the term that's already been decided, Texas and New Mexico. So Florida and Georgia are fighting over the shared water basin, and basically Florida is the downstream state, and it wants Georgia to use less water because there's not enough uh, fresh water coming down into this bay in Florida that hosts the state's uh, wild oyster industry. So the oysters are suffering. They say it's because of Georgia overusing the shared water basin. Georgia says, no, there are other factors that are affecting the oysters down in Florida. And so uh, there's this question of whether the Supreme Court will issue an order that would essentially force Georgia to use less water from this basin. Um, So that was argued in February. And the kind of conventional wisdom is that, in general, um, Georgia has the upper hand here because Florida is the downstream state and it's asking the Supreme Court to issue this you know, really powerful order. So it has to clear a really high legal bar to show why such an order is necessary. And during arguments last month, it, it you know, you could tell the justices were really struggling with this question and how to make sure this was fair. But uh, everybody who listened to arguments who I talked to kind of seemed to agree that Georgia still seemed to keep the upper hand throughout the argument. How did they decide in the last water case this term? And so there was another water case um, that was Texas and New Mexico, and it was about the Pecos River. It, it was really a more technical question. Um, it wasn't at all in the same kind of posture as this Florida and Georgia case, because uh, Texas and New Mexico were fighting 
over an existing water compact that the states already have that governs how the two states share the water. And they were arguing about a certain way to apply the compact um, to a situation where, uh, you know, there was a big storm and all of this uh, water was stored in a reservoir and ultimately lost um, to evaporation and not delivered to Texas. So um, it was this sort of complicated scenario where the states disagreed over whether New Mexico should get credit for that water that evaporated. Um, so ultimately, uh, Texas lost that fight. New Mexico won. Um, I'm not sure that has, because the issues were so specific to those kind of really um, unique fact patterns in that case, I'm not sure it has a, a big impact on on the other water case this term or future water cases. There's a newly conservative court, as we've all talked about, six to three. Does that make a difference in environmental cases? Absolutely, yes, it definitely does. Um, a more conservative court is generally seen as less favorable to environmental interests, and that can present on issues like um, deference to federal agencies and the rules they're crafting. That can present in issues like environmental standing, who can go to court in the first place. Um, so it's a it's a big uh, it's a big shift in the dynamic overall. These particular cases on the court's docket this term, they're not the most partisan or the most ideological cases that you'll see where the justices where the justices would necessarily just like split on those lines. So we probably won't see that play out just yet. But there are bigger environmental cases on the horizon, you know. As the Biden administration gets to work on its agenda, we'll see some big questions about how much power does the EPA have to address greenhouse gas emissions? Um, what are the limits of federal authority to limit um, development of fossil fuels? Who can sue over climate change? All of these other kind of big sweeping environmental law questions that will likely be affected by the new power dynamics on the court, you know, those are still to come. That's where we're really going to see an impact there. Okay, that was great. And now I know what's coming up. Probably the most closely watched case this term is uh, BP versus Baltimore, which is a climate case. That's It's not really a climate question before the court, but it affects climate litigation. So it's very important. Climate litigation in general is really high stakes. There's a ton of money and potentially involved, and a lot of people are watching this litigation to see where it goes. Thanks, Ellen. That's Ellen Gilmer of Bloomberg Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. Please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.